Junius Maltby, Part 2. Games in the schoolyard were beginning to fall off in interest. Robbie lamented the fact to Junius one morning before he started off to school. Junius scratched his head and thought, Spy is a good game, he said at last. I remember I used to like spy. Well, who shall we spy on, though? Oh, anyone. It doesn't matter. We used to spy on Italians. Robbie ran off excitedly to school. And that afternoon, following a lengthy recourse to the school dictionary, he organized the B-A-S-S-F-E-A-J. Translated, which it never was above a whisper, this was the Boys Auxiliary Secret Service for Espionage Against the Japanese. If for no other reason, the very magnificence of the name of this organization would have made it a force to be reckoned with. One by one, Robbie took the boys into the dim greenness under the schoolyard willow tree and there swore them to secrecy with an oath so ferocious that it would have done credit to a lodge. Later, he brought the group together. Robbie explained to the boys that we would undoubtedly go to war with Japan someday. It behoofs us to be ready, he said, the more we can find out about the nefarious practices of this nefarious race, the more spy information we can give our country when war breaks out. The candidates succumbed before this glorious diction. They were appalled by the seriousness of a situation which required words like this. Since spying was now the business of the school, little Takashi Kato, who was in the third grade, didn't spend a private moment from then on. If Takashi raised two fingers in school, Robbie glanced meaningly at one of the boy auxiliaries, and a second hand sprung frantically in the air. When Takashi walked home from school, at least five boys crept through the brush beside the road. Eventually, however, Mr. Kato, Takashi's father, fired a shot into the dark one night after seeing a white face looking in his window. Robbie reluctantly called the auxiliary together and ordered that espionage should be stopped at sundown. They couldn't do anything really important at night, he explained. In the long run, Takashi did not suffer from the espionage practiced on him, for since the auxiliaries had to watch him, they could make no important excursions without taking him along. He found himself invited everywhere because no one would consent to be left behind to watch him. The boy auxiliaries received their death blow when Takashi, who had in some way learned of their existence, applied 
for admittance. I don't see how we can let you in, Bobby explained. Kindly. You see, you're a Japanese, and we hate them. Takashi was almost in tears. I... I was born here, the same as you, he cried. I'm just as good as I'm just as good American as you, ain't I? Robbie thought hard. He didn't want to be cruel to Takashi. Then his brow cleared. Say, do you speak Japanese? He demanded. Sure, pretty good. Well then. You can be our interpreter and figure out secret messages. Takashi beamed with pleasure. Sure I can, he cried enthusiastically. And if you guys want, we'll spy on my old man. But the thing was broken. There was no one left to fight but Mr. Kato, and Mr. Kato was too nervous with his shotgun. Halloween went past and Thanksgiving. In that time, Robbie's effect on the boys was indicated by a growth in their vocabularies and by a positive hatred for shoes, or any kind of good clothing for that matter. Although he didn't realize it, Robbie had set a style, not new, perhaps, but more rigid than it had been. It was unmanly to wear good clothes, and even more than that, it was considered an insult to Robbie. One Friday afternoon, Robbie wrote 14 notes and secretly passed them to 14 boys in the schoolyard. The notes were all the same. They said, A lot of Indians are going to burn the President of the United States to the stake at my house tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Sneak out and bark like a fox down by our lower field. I will come and lead you to the rescue of this poor soul. For several months, Miss Morgan had intended to call upon Junius Maltby. The stories told of him and her contact with his son had raised her interest to a high point. Every now and then in the schoolroom, one of the boys imparted a piece of astounding information. For example, one child, who was really famous for his stupidity, told her that Hengist and Horsa invaded Britain. When pressed, he admitted that the information came from Junius Maltby and that in some way it was a kind of a secret. The story of the goat amused the teacher so much that she wrote it for a magazine. But no magazine bought it. Over and over, she had to set a date to walk out to the Maltby farm. She awakened on a December Saturday morning and found frost in the air and a brilliant sun shining. After breakfast, she put on her corduroy skirt and her hiking boots and left the house. In the yard, she tried to persuade the ranch dogs to accompany her, but they only flopped their tails and went back to sleep in the sun. The Maltby place lay about two miles away 
in the little canyon called Gato Amarillo. A stream ran beside the road, and sword ferns grew rankly under the alders. It was almost cold in the canyon, for the sun had not yet climbed over the mountain. Once during her walk, Miss Morgan thought she heard footsteps and voices ahead of her. But when she hurried around the bend, no one was in sight. However, the brush beside the road crackled mysteriously. Although she had never been there before, Miss Morgan knew the Maltby land when she came to it. Fences reclined tiredly on the ground under an overload of bramble. The fruit trees stretched bare branches clear of a forest of weeds. Wild blackberry vines clambered up the apple trees. Squirrels and rabbits bolted from under her feet, and soft-voiced doves flew away with whistling wings. In a tall, wild pear tree, a congress of blue jays squawked a cacophonous argument. Then, beside an elm tree, which wore a shaggy coat of frost-bitten morning glory, Miss Morgan saw the mossy curled shingles of the Maltby roof. The place, in its quietness, might have been deserted for a hundred years. Oh, how run down and slovenly, she thought. How utterly lovely and slipshod she let herself into the yard through a wicket gate, which hung to its post by one iron band. The farm buildings were gray with weathering, and up the sides of the walls, outlawed climbers pushed their fingers. Miss Morgan turned the corner of the house and stopped in her tracks. Her mouth fell open and a chill shriveled on her spine. In the center of the yard, a stout post was set up, and to it an old and ragged man was bound with many lengths of rope. Another man, younger and smaller, but even more ragged, piled brush around the feet of the captive. Miss Morgan shivered and backed around the house corner again. Such things don't happen, she insisted. You're dreaming. Such things just can't happen. And then she heard the most amiable of conversations going on between the two men. It's nearly ten, said the torturer. The captive replied, Yeah, and you be careful how you put fire to that brush. You be sure to see them coming before you light it. Miss Morgan nearly screamed with relief. She walked a little unsteadily toward the stake. The free man turned and saw her. For a second, he seemed surprised, but immediately recovering, he bowed. Coming from a man with torn overalls and a matted beard, the bow was ridiculous and charming. I'm the teacher, Miss Morgan explained breathlessly. 
I was just out for a walk and I saw this house. For a moment, I thought this auto de fe was serious. <laughs> Junius smiled. But it is serious. It's more serious than you think. For a moment, I thought you were the rescue. The relief is due at 10 o'clock, you know. A savage barking of foxes broke out below the house among the willows. Mm, that will be the relief, Junius continued. Pardon me, Miss Morgan. It, it is Miss Morgan, isn't it? I'm Junius Maltby. Oh, and this gentleman on ordinary days is Jacob Stutz. Today, though, he is President of the United States being burned by Indians. For a time, we thought he'd be Guinevere, but even without the full figure, he makes a better president than a Guinevere, don't you think? Besides, he refused to wear a skirt. Damn foolishness, said the president complacently. Miss Morgan laughed. May I watch the rescue, Mr. Maltby? I'm not Mr. Maltby. I'm 300 Indians. The barking of foxes broke out again. Over by the steps, said the 300 Indians. You won't be massacred over there. He gazed toward the stream. A willow branch was shaking wildly. Junius scratched a match on his trousers and set fire to the brush at the foot of the stake. As the flame leaped up, the willow trees seemed to burst into pieces and each piece became a shrieking boy. The mass charged forward, armed as haphazardly and as terribly as the French people were when they stormed the Bastille. Even as the fire licked toward the president, it was kicked violently aside. The rescuers unwound the ropes with fervent hands, and Jacob Stutz stood free and happy. Nor was the following ceremony less impressive than the rescue. As the boys stood at salute, the president marched down the line and to each overall bib pinned a leaden slug on which the word hero was deeply scratched. The game was over. Next Saturday, we hang the guilty villains who have attempted this dastardly plot, Robbie announced. Why not now? Let's hang them now, the troops screamed. No, no, my men. There are lots of things to do. We have to make a gallows, he turned to his father. I guess we'll have to hang both of you, he said. For a moment, he looked covetously at Miss Morgan and then reluctantly gave her up. That afternoon was one of the most pleasant Miss Morgan had ever spent. Although she was given a seat of honor on the sycamore limb, the boys had ceased to regard her as the teacher. It's nicer if you take off your shoes, Robbie invited her. And it was nicer, she found, when her boots were off and her feet dangled in the water. That afternoon, Junius talked of cannibal societies among the Aleutian Indians. He told how the mercenaries turned against Carthage. He described the Lacedaemonians combing their hair before they died at their Piaia. He explained the origin of macaroni and 
told of the discovery of copper as though he had been there. Finally, when the dower Jacob opposed his idea of the eviction of the Garden of Eden, a mild quarrel broke out, and the boys started for home. Miss Morgan allowed them to distance her, for she wanted to think quietly about the strange gentleman. The day when the school board visited was looked forward to with terror by both the teacher and her pupils. It was a day of tense ceremony. Lessons were recited nervously, and the misspelling of a word seemed a capital crime. There was no day on which the children made more blunders, nor on which the teacher's nerves were thinner worn. The school board of the Pastures of Heaven visited on the afternoon of December 15th. Immediately after lunch, they filed in, looking somber and funereal and a little ashamed. First came John Whiteside, the clerk, old and white-haired, with an easy attitude toward education, which was sometimes criticized in the valley. Pat Humbert came after him. Pat was elected because he wanted to be. He was a lonely man who had no initiative in meeting people and who took every possible means to be thrown into their contact. His clothes were as uncompromising, as unhappy as the bronze suit on the seated statue of Lincoln in Washington. T.B. Allen followed, dumpily rolling up the aisle. He was the only merchant in the valley. His seat on the board belonged to him by right. Behind him strode Raymond Banks, big and jolly and very red of hands and face. Last in the line was Bert Monroe, the newly elected member. Since it was his first visit to the school, Bert seemed a little sheepish as he followed the other members to their seats at the front of the room. When the board was seated magisterially, their wives came in and found seats at the back of the room behind the children. The pupils squirmed uneasily. They felt they were surrounded, that escape, should they need to escape, was cut off. When they twisted in their seats, they saw that the women were smiling benevolently on them. They caught sight of a large paper bundle which Mrs. Monroe held on her lap. School opened. Miss Morgan, with a strained smile on her face, welcomed the school board. We will do nothing out of the ordinary, gentlemen, she said. I think it will be more interesting to you in your official capacities to see the school as it operates every day. Very little later, she wished she hadn't said that. Never within her recollection had she seen such stupid children. Those who did manage to force words past their frozen palates made the most hideous mistakes. Their spelling was abominable. Their reading sounded like the gibbering of the insane. 
The board tried to be dignified, but they could not help smiling a little from embarrassment for the children. A little perspiration formed on Miss Morgan's forehead. She had visions of being dismissed from her position by an outraged board. The wives in the rear smiled on nervously, and time dripped by. When the arithmetic had been muddled and travestied, John Whiteside arose from his chair. Thank you, Miss Morgan, he said. If you'll allow it, I'll just say a few words to the children, and then you can dismiss them. They ought to have some payment for having us here. The teacher sighed with relief. Then you do understand. They weren't doing as well as usual. I'm glad you know that. John Whiteside smiled. He had seen so many nervous young teachers on school board days. If I thought they were doing their best, I'd close the school, he said. Then he spoke to the children for five minutes, told them they should study hard and love their teacher. It was the short and painless little speech he had used for years. The older pupils had heard it often. When it was done, he talked, he asked the teacher to dismiss the school. The pupils filed quietly out, but once in the air, their relief was too much for them. With howls and shrieks, they did their best to kill each other by disembowelment and decapitation. John Whiteside shook hands with Miss Morgan. We've never had a teacher who kept better order, he said kindly. I think if you knew how much the children like you, you'd be embarrassed. They're good children, she insisted loyally. They're awfully good children. Of course, John Whiteside agreed. By the way, how is the little Maltby boy getting along? Oh, why, he's a bright youngster, a curious child. I think he has almost a brilliant mind. Well, we've been talking about him in board meeting. Miss Morgan, you know, of course, his home life isn't all that it ought to be. I noticed him this afternoon especially. The poor child's hardly clothed. Well, it's a strange home. Miss Morgan felt that she had to defend Junius. It's not the usual kind of home, but it isn't bad. Don't mistake me, Miss Morgan. We aren't going to interfere. We just thought we ought to give him a few things. His father's very poor, you know. I know, she said gently. Mrs. Monroe bought him a few clothes. If you call him in, we'll give them to him. Oh, no, I wouldn't, she began. What? Why not? We only have a few little shirts and a pair of overalls and some shoes. But, Mr. Whiteside, it might embarrass him. He's quite a proud little chap. Embarrass him to have decent clothes? Oh, <laughs> nonsense. I should think it would embarrass him more not to have them. But aside from that, it's too cold for him to go barefoot at this time of year. Why, there's been frost on the ground every morning for a week. 
I wish you wouldn't, she said helplessly. I really wish you wouldn't do it. Miss Morgan, don't you think you're making too much of this? Mrs. Monroe has been kind enough to buy the things for him. Please call him in so we can give them to him. A moment later, Robbie stood before them. His unkempt hair fell over his face and his eyes still glittered with the fierceness of the play in the yard. The group gathered at the front of the room, regarded him kindly, trying not to look too pointedly at his ragged clothes. Robbie gazed uneasily about. Mrs. Monroe, uh, has something to give you, Robert, Miss Morgan said. Then Mrs. Monroe came forward and put the bundle in his arms. What a nice little boy. Robbie placed the package carefully on the floor and put his hands behind him. Open it, Robert, T.B. Allen said sternly. Where are your manners? Robbie gazed resentfully at him. Yes, sir, he said and untied the string. The shirts and the new overalls lay open before him, and he stared at them uncomprehendingly. Suddenly, he seemed to realize what they were. His face flushed warmly. For a moment, he looked about nervously like a trapped animal, and then he bolted through the door, leaving the little heap of clothing behind him. The school board heard two steps on the porch, and Robbie was gone. Mrs. Monroe turned helplessly to the teacher. Why, what's wrong with him, anyway? I think he was embarrassed, said Miss Morgan. Why should he be? We were nice to him. The teacher tried to explain and became a little angry with them in trying. I think, you see, why, I don't think he knew he was poor until a moment ago. Mm, it was my mistake, John Whiteside apologized. I'm sorry, Miss Morgan. What can we do about it? Bert Monroe asked. I don't know. I really don't know. Mrs. Monroe turned to her husband. Bert, I think if you went out and had a talk with Mr. Maltby, it might help. I don't mean you to be anything but kind. Just tell him little boys shouldn't walk around in bare feet in the frost. Maybe just a word like that will help. Mr. Maltby could tell little Robert that he must take the clothes. What do you think, Mr. Whiteside? I don't like it. You'll have, to, you'll have to vote to overrule my objection. I've done enough harm here. I think his health is more important than his feelings, Mrs. Monroe insisted. School closed for Christmas week on the 20th of December. Miss Morgan planned to spend her vacation in Los Angeles. While she waited at the crossroads for a bus to Salinas, she saw a man and a little boy walking down the pastures of Heaven Road toward her. 
They were dressed in cheap, new clothes, and both of them walked as though their feet were sore. As they neared her, Miss Morgan looked closely at the little boy and saw that it was Robbie. His face was sullen and unhappy. Why, Robert, she cried, what's the matter? Where are you going? The man spoke. We're going to San Francisco, Miss Morgan. She looked up quickly. It was Junius, shorn of his beard. She hadn't realized that he was so old. Even his eyes, which had been young, looked old. But of course he was pale because the beard had protected his skin from sunburn. On his face there was a look of deep puzzlement. Are you going up for the holidays? Miss Morgan asked. I love the stores in the city around Christmas. I could look in them for days. No, Junius replied slowly. I guess we're going to be up there for good. I am an accountant, Miss Morgan. At least, I was an accountant 20 years ago. I'm going to try to get a job. There was pain in his voice. But why do you do that? She demanded. You see, he explained simply, I didn't know I was doing any injury to the boy here. I hadn't thought about it. I suppose I should have thought about it. You can see that he shouldn't be brought up in poverty. You can see that, can't you? I didn't know what people were saying about us. Well, why don't you stay on at the ranch? It's a good ranch, isn't it? But I couldn't make a living on it, Miss Morgan. I don't know anything about farming. Jacob is going to try to run the ranch, but <laughs> you know. Jacob is very lazy. Later, when I can, I'll sell the ranch so Robbie can have a few things he never had. Miss Morgan was angry, but at the same time, she felt she was going to cry. You don't, you don't believe everything silly people tell you, do you? He looked at her in surprise. Oh, of course not. But you can see for yourself that a growing boy shouldn't be brought up like a little animal, can't you? The bus came into sight on the highway and bore down on them. Junius pointed to Robbie. He didn't want to come. He ran away into the hills. Jacob and I caught him last night. He lived like a little animal, too. Well, besides, Miss Morgan, he doesn't know how nice it'll be in San Francisco. The bus squealed to a stop. Junius and Robbie climbed into the back seat. Miss Morgan was about to get in beside them. Suddenly, she turned and took her seat beside the driver. Of course, she said to herself, of course. They want to be alone. <laughs>